Good morning, everybody. Uh, <clears throat> the reading today is from chapter 3 of Genesis, starting at verse 1. It's the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. It's celebrated usually on the 1st of January, when Jesus was first realised uh, revealed to the world. So it's a moment of sudden and great revelation or realisation. <clears throat> and we can expect that today as Michael presents a message, a sudden great revelation to us all. So let's begin at verse 1. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from this tree in the garden? <clears throat> the woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <clears throat> when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground which, from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flashing sword flaming sword and flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. This is a great reading. Hear the word of the God. Hear the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Isn't there a lot to look at here? There is so much. I'm going to need my There is a lot to talk about. We could talk about men blaming women, how that hasn't changed. Yeah, that was kind of funny. We could talk about the unfairness of childbirth, perhaps, thistles and thorns, angels with flaming swords. I mean, what do you do with that? I thought angels are supposed to be like pretty and all of that. But here they are with flaming swords guarding the garden. We could talk about the tree of life. What is that? Metaphor? Literal? We could go about that. Well, I decide not to talk about any of those things. And instead, we're going to talk about temptation, probably because it is the topic of least interest to us. 
Yeah, you heard me right. Temptation is a topic of least interest. I mean, the only temptations that I give into are the ones I really want to give into. I like them. You know, the chocolate, <laughs> coffee, and the couple of beers at night. You know, they're the temptations I want. I give into them and I enjoy them and I accept the consequences. No, this is important. We're going to see this in a moment. Now, before I talk about all that stuff, I want to share a little story with you. I was wandering around Stockton the other day, as I normally do, knocking on doors, saying, hi, how are you? Offering to talk a little bit about Jesus if people are interested. And um, I came to this wonder and I knocked away and no one answered. It was on Mitchell Street, just over here. I could like, what's going on? I could hear somebody inside, but they wouldn't come to the door. And I knocked a bit more and still they wouldn't come. And then the spirit stirred in my heart and then popped into my head was Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And I said in a loud voice, because if it come from God, then maybe it's for this person. Nice loud voice. I said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they will be with me. Well, to this I heard a bit of a shuffle, a bit of a commotion, and then a quiet voice spoke out. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. I heard you in the garden and I did not answer, for I was naked. <laughs> Obviously that was a joke, right? <laughs> Genesis 3 is no joke. We've got, like, seriously today, we, we, I'd like us to cover just two things as we check out some of the classic tools that the enemy uses to deceive us, to tempt us, and to lead us astray. The first one is distortion. Temptation always begins with a distorted version of the truth. The consequences are minimised and often explained in outright lies, ultimately. And that's how it starts. The second thing about temptation we might not realise, at least we might not have named, is that giving in claims to give us wisdom and power. Giving in to temptations claims us to give us something we do not deserve, have earned. It's a shortcut to something. And it applies to chocolate and coffee, yeah? Shortcut to good night's sleep and all of that. All right, we're going to pray. We'll talk about all that stuff in a minute. First up, Lord, we just thank you for your great love. Thank you for those who tune in from home, watching this now and later. Lord, we just pray that you would touch our hearts with your word and open our minds to it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's see how the best of deceivers do it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the distortion. The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Clear, the tempter, he's clearly distorted God's word. That's immediate, right? Distorted God's word. Taken a simple instruction of God, do not eat from one tree, and turned it into something bigger, more restrictive, any tree. I mean, God has given them all. I mean, how many trees are out there? How much fruit is out there? How many options do we have? Like, it's unlimited. Yet there's one tree, and the temptation focuses on this one thing rather than the permission, focus on the prohibition. And this distortion, this any tree distortion, well, it seems rather harmless, doesn't it? At least on the surface. But deep down, this is sowing a seed that makes God out to be one who is overly restrictive it's my tree not yours you can't have it God who is spiteful you know you, it's, I'm giving you 
holding you back from this one thing. A God who is mean, and I'm not going to share what I have. A God who is self-protective, you know, with this tree, is going to make you like him. Now, I know as a young adult, I resisted responding to Jesus because I thought it would ruin my fun. I just thought it would ruin my fun. I liked living with my girlfriend. I liked having sex before I was married. I mean, everyone else was doing it. It was the norm. It's how it is. I know it's not just me. I hear this kind of talk from youth and adults alike. It's a talk that's deeply embedded in our culture. But so is the naivety when it comes to the deceptions of the enemy. So is our inability to recognise temptation for what it is. Now, the truth is, if I waited, I wish I waited. But I didn't. It took almost two decades of marriage for me to realise what this thing was really about, to understand something special. I'm not going to give you a sex ed class, all right? I know you didn't come to church for that. Maybe you did, and you're sorely disappointed. <laughs> We're going to get back to this text. We're going to have a look how Eve responds. And at first, there's a bit of hope in her response. It's like she's, she's getting it. But we know she falls into the trap. Here it is, Genesis 3, chapter, verse 2. The woman replies to the snake, we may eat, from, eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Cool. I mean, she recognised the distortion of, of the deceiver. She recognised his first lie. But then what does she do? She does what he does. She puts herself in God's shoes. She speaks for God. And in doing so, she exaggerates this simple do not eat and turns it into the much more restrictive do not touch. But why does she do this? God said do not eat. He didn't say do not touch. It could just be a, an embellishment. I don't think so. I think Eve's doing what we usually do. She feels she has to justify her choice to do the right thing. She's got to justify her choice to do the right thing. And then she's got to justify God. She's got to speak for God and make it sound like, you know, stand up for God. Because everyone knows that God can't stand up for himself. What does this embellishment achieve? All it does is pave the way, opens the door for evil to, con for evil to convince Eve that this temptation will provide her with wisdom and power. Wisdom and power. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, said the snake to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So what started out in a, in a distortion marked as a question has become a blatant lie. You will most not certainly die, said the serpent. And what's promised here? Wisdom and power. Wisdom and power is promised. Your eyes will be opened. You'll have wisdom. You'll see things the way they're supposed to be. You'll have power. You will be like God. But notice that the snake has done something even more crafty, even more deceptive here. He set up God as the oppressor and raised himself up as the liberator. God is the oppressor now in this story. And the snake is the liberator. How did that happen? Simple, Eve took a step down the slippery slope. The distortion became an embellishment, became a lie, and lies can be so attractive 
Now you can imagine Eve, can't you, in the course of this conversation, starting to take steps towards the tree. You can imagine her starting to catch a glimpse, this, this fruit on a tree, it's, it's pleasing to the eye. You can imagine her, can't you? She's just kind of getting closer and closer as the snake keeps talking about it and the deception keeps growing. And also notice that God doesn't stop temptation from having its full appeal. There's always something good in it. But it's only a half truth. It's half the story. Have a look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. This is the original sin. I'm sure you've heard that term before. This is what we call the original sin. It is a factual event. I have no doubt of that, but it's also a template. It's an example of what temptation and sin look like today. Let's run through it, just quickly through this first sin of Adam and Eve, what it means, what Jesus does about it, and then we're going to finish with a story. Firstly, Adam and Eve listened to the created instead of the creator. They looked to the wisdom of the world instead of to the wisdom of the one who made it. They chose what looked good, what felt good, instead of what is good. And God is good. Jesus says, God alone is good. And speaking of Jesus, there is a parallel to this temptation, the, the way to do it right as opposed to do it wrong, and it's in Matthew 4. We have recorded there a bunch of temptations the devil put before Jesus. Now, keeping in mind these temptations come after Jesus was baptised and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, 40 days in the wilderness without food, and the devil appears and says this, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In other words, Jesus, take a shortcut. You know that you can, and if you can, then why not do it? There's no harm in just turning a few stones into bread, is there? Well, to this Jesus answers, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He responds, not with an embellishment, not by giving in to the tempter, not by putting himself above God, but with a simple recognition that it is God who supplies. It's God he should trust. If God wanted him to have food in that moment, if that's his greatest spiritual need, then God would provide it. No doubt. But it wasn't the need at the time. Mistake number one was to look to the created instead of the creator. The second mistake of Adam and Eve was that they followed their desires. One might say they trusted their hearts. I mean, hearts are so deceptive. Oh, if I trusted my heart, I would have a cupboard full of chocolate. I don't. I just get one when it's on special because I'm not that strong. They followed their hearts. Their sin was in choosing their impressions over the instructions of God. The parallel example of Jesus is when the devil took him up on a high mountain in his 40 days in the wilderness and said this, Throw yourself down, Jesus, for it is written, He will commend his angels concerning you, and they will lift up you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
This impression is true, but Jesus doesn't respond to the impression. He responds to the instructions, the word of God. And, it says, and then he says, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The creator, the created instead of the creator, the impression instead of the instructions. And lastly, our Adam and Eve, they made self-fulfillment their goal. I know what's best for me. I just need to be my real self. I just need to do what's in here and everything will be, be peachy. I know better than God, they say. And I want to be God. And if I was God, I would do this one thing. I'm going to be God. Well, to this as well, Jesus is no stranger. For the devil said to him, all of the kingdoms of the world will be yours if you bow down and worship me. To this, Jesus rebukes Satan and says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The scriptures tell us if you resist the enemy, he will flee from you. It's the same for us today. Now, sadly, our first couple didn't respond as Jesus did. Sadly, the tempter remained in their company. And sadly, they got to experience the full weight of their own sin. And the weight of sin is shame. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Apart from making our children's story, um, Adam and Eve pictures a bit comical, you know, with the fig leaves and stuff, it's a pretty pathetic way to cover yourself, isn't it? I mean, how do you connect them together? I, I don't know what they did. They got some string. I guess it was, they hadn't, didn't have string at that point. Maybe they got some vines. But it's pathetic. And that's what our sin is. It's pathetic how, when we try to cover it up. We think we hide it. We think we've swept it under the rug. But it takes root in our hearts as bitterness. It, it, others see it and we pretend they don't. This is what's going on here. These couple are experiencing for the first time the full fruit of sin, shame. Shame is the first fruit of all sin. Second is a distancing from God, which is what we're going to see as chapter 3 progresses. And the final fruit of sin is death. Death awaits for every single one of us who has sinned. No wonder we try to sweep it under the carpet, because we know where it leads. Shame is the first fruit. Second is a distancing from God. Third is death. And all of this we share as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. But there is hope. There's hope. It's not a hope that we'll win the lottery. I've tried that. It hasn't worked yet. It is a sure and certain hope. God in Jesus, the second Adam, he steps into the creation, proves to everyone that he is God, does it through healings and miracles and the way he speaks. He does it most, most especially by forgiving sin. He forgives sin because being God, he's the one who is offended most chiefly by our sin. And Jesus becomes a substitute for us. He becomes a reversal of the forbidden fruit, if you will. Now let me wrap up with the story. Who's read the screw tape letters? One, two, three, four, five, a few people. It is a fantastic book. C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. It is his, I wonder what that sound is. Cicadas, wow. Oh, talk about, oh, don't worry. 
Screwtape Letters is a great work, right? It's C.S. Lewis' best-selling book next to the Chronicles of Narnia. He writes this book from the perspective of a senior devil, puts himself in the shoes of a devil. He writes 31 letters to a junior devil named Wormwood, a devil in training who is given the job of securing the damnation of someone who's coming to faith in Christ. And he's, his book just gives such amazing insights, humour, the wit. It is nothing less than impressive and well worth the read. Word of warning though, screw tape letters in one hand, dictionary in the other. His command of English is like nothing else you would have, I've seen anyway, but it's, it is so wonderful. All right, C.S. Lewis says this about writing screw tape letters. He says that it was one of the easiest books to write, just float onto the page, piece of cake. But he also says the writing process was completely devoid of joy. Turns out putting your head or your mind into the work of the enemy is, is less than joyous. Now to my story as we wrap this up. And it comes in the spirit of the screw tape letters, so stick with me. It comes with a bit of inspiration from one of the preachers at CMS Summer School this year, so I've appropriated a little bit of his work, but it's all love and fair in the kingdom of God. Hypothetically, right, this is a hypothetical story. So we've got three junior devils, and they're undergoing their final exam before they're sent out into the world to deceive and tempt and do all the things they do. Now their final exam, they're given one question. It's a verbal exam. And the question is this, what will be your number one technique in order to keep people from the kingdom of God? What's your number one thing you're going to do? What's your go-to thing that you're going to do? Well, the first devil jumps up. He's straight off the mark because, you know, pride is what made the devil the devil. So he just wanted to show that, you know, he was good to go. And he gets up there and he goes, he thinks he's got it. This is the answer. This is what I'm going to do. This will secure the damnation of so many people. He says, I'm going to wander around the earth and I'm going to whisper in their ear, there is no God. There is no God. Fail, says the senior devil. Fail. Fail. He said, that's not going to work. Most people believe in a God. Sure, they might have tarot cards in the cupboard or <laughs> they might have Buddha statues in the garden. Most people believe in a God. And if you keep reminding them about God, they're just going to seek him even more. And worse still, they might even find themselves on a cross next to Jesus and then in paradise, and we'll lose another one like we did before. Well, the second devil speaks up, doesn't he? He's a bit more nervous than the first. He's got to reprimand. And you know, what's your one thing, your go-to thing to secure people's damnation? He says this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wander around telling people there is no judgment for the things you do that feel right. If it feels good. If it seems okay, if others are doing it, then there'll be no judgment. It is not a sin. And the senior devil goes, yeah, I'll pass that. Only just, but, only just. Some will be deceived. Some people's hearts will be hardened to God as they think, oh, I know better than God. I know what's good for me and what isn't good for me. And, and they harden their hearts. And hey, and a few might even blame God for their suffering. They might even blame God because he's allowing them to suffering under the consequences of their sinful choices. Well, number three speaks up, doesn't he? He's a bit more quiet-spoken, this little devil. <laughs> but he speaks up and he says, you know what? I'm going to spend my time distracting people. In those rare moments when they think about God, perhaps at Nana's funeral, 
perhaps in their quiet moments when they're not distracted by their phones and the internet and TV and all of that, when they're just in that moment, they're starting to think about, God, I'm going to distract them. And I'm going to remind them, there is no rush. There is no rush. There's no rush. This is probably one of the biggest deceptions of our day. It's a deception that I bought into. People who hear about Jesus, they often even pray at times, but it's all up here and the heart's not convinced. As a young adult, I, I, I wasn't, my heart wasn't convinced. I thought there was no rush to step into this whole faith thing, so I waited. And during the waiting, the devil got a foothold in my life, and before I knew it, a decade had passed, and I'd missed out on so much blessing that I could have had walking the path that he had for me. Now, don't wait, my, don't wait, my friends, don't wait. Temptations always appear pleasing to the eye, but the truth is... It takes a bit of work from us. The junk food, the chocolate, the coffee, trivial examples. But we all know they're quick fixes, yeah? What we really need is some exercise and a good night's sleep. I was reading an article this week about the medical profession changing how we treat obesity. Currently it's go get some exercise, eat less, they're changing it. Here's some pills. The forbidden fruit was attractive. It was pleasing to the eye. It was a quick fix. But the cross, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for those who know Jesus, we see in the cross a beauty like no other. We see our tears in his eyes. We see our pain in his side. And we see our shame on that cross. To this truth, our hearts cry out and turn to God. To this truth, we say sorry. We say, please forgive me. Touch my heart in a new way, God. Teach me your way. And in this moment when we turn to him, the Holy Spirit, he rewrites our DNA, our spiritual DNA, with something of God, with something of himself. And no longer is it, is death the consequence of our sin. No longer are we so easily deceived as God starts to reveal to us the patterns of this world. And open our eyes to his wisdom and his truth. Now I could spend a few more minutes trying to convince people of this. But obviously I'm preaching mostly to the converted. I don't need to do this. Because if God is calling you, you know it. It's in your heart. You know it. You've got that response. Faith is an act of God in our hearts. And if he's calling you, you know it. Don't listen to the deceptions. The time is now. There is a rush. Jesus will return. The end will come. The day, the hour is not known. How about we take a moment to pray? 
How about we confess our sins together? It's a simple act of truth that prepares our hearts. It facilitates the increase in what God has already begun in our hearts and lives. Something I do every day. When I pray in the morning and the evening, I do it here in church together as a reminder. And it's just preparing the way for God in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love. Open our hearts. And let us pray together. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have broken your holy laws and have left undone what we ought to have done. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God desires that none should perish, but that all should turn to Christ and live. And in response to his call, we have acknowledged our sins. And God pardons those who humbly repent and truly believe the gospel. And therefore we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Amen.